I am Citizen 44. My father just called me from California to let me know that his dog Gus is no longer with us. He had taken him in to get him checked out based on some odd behavior he was exhibiting. And uh, they found that he had cancer on his lungs. And uh, I guess he was not in good shape. And it was decided that they would go ahead and help him transition out. Gus was a beloved dog. Everyone that met Gus loved him. He was so sweet. And uh, I know this will be another loss for my father. I'm so sorry, Dad. Rest in peace, Gus. You are listening to Citizen 44 with Mark Aronsberg. This show is sponsored by Crater Lake Taxi. Clean cars, 24-hour service, Medford Airport, wine tours, emergency car lockout, towing, battery jump start, and food delivery. Ashland, Talent, Phoenix, Medford, and beyond. Ask about their loyalty program. Mention the Citizen 44 podcast and get a 10% discount on your next taxi ride. 541-333-3333. CraterLakeTaxi.com. It's time to make money. There's a story to sell, and it ain't all bees and honey. Hearts to break and blood to spill and pain to inflict. That's why they call me the love addict. Love addict. Love addict. Love addict. Love addict. Hey, everybody. Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to... Citizen 44. This is show number 109. This is part two of a two-part episode with my guest, Adrian Wilson. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. You can make your donation at paypal.me backslash Mark Ahrensberg or on Venmo at Mark Ahrensberg. Thanks so much. You can find all episodes of Citizen 44 on Apple, Amazon, CastBox, Stitcher, and other online broadcast resources. You can also find Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg on Substack, along with update letters, photo galleries, and other really cool content. MarkAaronsberg.substack.com Also, if you go to MarkAaronsberg.com, My first photo book is for sale, Peace and Love from Vietnam. 10% of the profits go to Blue Dragon Children's Foundation of Vietnam. Blue Dragon does a lot of work with local families, especially children who are in crisis. To find out more, visit them online at bluedragon.org. We've got my dad and Lean Ann on the show. Hey, Dad. Mark, how you doing? I'm good. How you doing? Good. What's happening? Nothing. What's going on over there at the Varial? Nothing. I had my tooth pulled yesterday. I had an abscess tooth. Yeah. And uh, today I'm getting an epidural shot in my back because I've had a lot of back problems lately. Sorry to hear about your back. Yeah. I can't complain. So just kicking back and watching some TV. That's it. Nothing exciting. Okay, listen to this. I'm talking to Lean Ann yesterday. She's still in Saigon, 
but we did meditation over the internet. And uh, later on in the day, she told me she had the strangest experience while we were meditating. She said, while we were meditating, she imagined that she was a wave in the ocean. And then she heard her father's rooster behind us saying, Mark Ahrensberg, Mark Ahrensberg. And at three o'clock this morning, I bolted upright because I heard the rooster saying, Mark Ahrensberg, Mark Ahrensberg, like four times. And then after that, a frog said, yep, 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 yep. Yeah. So obviously, so you and Leanne are both cracking up. That certainly may be. So I got up and I turned on the mic and stuck it out the window. And about 15 minutes later, I could hear the rooster saying it, but I didn't hear the frog saying whatever it was saying. You heard the rooster saying, Mark, Mark. No, Mark Ahrensberg. Oh, Mark. I think you got to take some pills. No, definitely <laughs> don't need pills. And I don't know if you remember this, but our cat, Shell, Val just put down, our cat we had for 19 years, used to go to Zoe's bedroom door and yell, Zoe, Zoe. And I recorded it, and she was definitely saying Zoe. Oh. You can believe it or not, I have a record of it on my computer. Okay. How the kids doing? I have not spoken to Zoe in a month. I have no idea. Really? Oh, Sam. He's good. He's actually on his way to L.A. to meet his birth father. Very good. Yeah. He's traveling with his sister, not Zoe, but with his birth sister. Very nice. Yeah. And then Zoe, I guess, has been super busy. I leave her messages, and I spoke to Val the other day and let her know that I hadn't spoken to her in weeks. And uh, she said she's just busy. So I thought maybe she was upset going through like a phase for two reasons. One, because I've been gone over two and a half years. And two, because I had mentioned something about trying to come out for a visit, but I couldn't figure out how to make that work. So, yeah. But uh, Val assured me that it wasn't either one of those things, that she's just busy with school and her job at school. And I guess she has a social life now and... Yeah, she's not easy to nail down, but I don't take it personally. I left her a message saying I spoke to your mother, and she said you're just super busy, so love you. Talk to you when I talk to you. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I can't get worked up about it. I'm still not 100% convinced that she's not upset with me about something, but I can't do anything about whatever I can't do anything about. Yeah, that's true. How's Gus? He's not doing too well. Why? He's got big growth on his side, and... I have to take him to the vet and find out what's going on. Oh. He's had that for a long time, but not cancer or anything. I had it checked. Yeah. But it's gotten bigger, so I have to take him in because he's starting to act funny. Huh. Other than that, everything's cool. Both of you have some stuff going on. Yeah, nothing serious with me. It could be taken care of. I can't complain, you know? All right. Well, I wanted to check in with you because, I mean, we speak every week, but, you know, anything can happen from day to day. Who knows? Yeah, right. So when's she coming home? Leanne will be home on the 27th. Her friend's birthday is on the 26th, which is part of the reason she's there. So you'll see her next week? Yeah, she'll be home on Tuesday morning. Very good. I recorded her today. We had a nice long conversation online. I was really impressed that she uh, was willing to do that. Good. So she's speaking better English now? Yeah, I mean, you know, she can't help it because she's with me. Of course. Do you speak any Vietnamese? Mo chut. Very little? That's exactly what it means. Very little. Yeah. 
When I walk down the street, as you've seen, when I'm greeting people, they don't think I can speak Vietnamese, but I say Sin Chao, which means hello. Yeah. So they're under the assumption that I can speak and they start rattling off Vietnamese to me and I go, no, 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 mo chut, mo chut Vietnamese. Yeah. I had tea with a couple of old men the other day and we don't have to have words, but I figured out how to use the voice activated translator on my phone for Google Translate. Yeah. And it identifies whatever language. It didn't work yesterday morning because I think the phone got too hot, but typically if someone is speaking clear Vietnamese, not only will it translate, but it will speak what I say back to them in Vietnamese. And the people here are pretty tickled by it, and they'll totally engage with me in a little conversation. And that's pretty much it. Dad, it's good to catch up with you a little bit. I hope the shot works for your back. Sorry to hear about Gus. I hope that can get taken care of. You know what? You look around today, there's so much shit going on. I'm just thankful for what I have, so... Good. I feel the same way. I can't believe I get to do what I get to do. I'm glad to have you on the show, Dad. I love you, and I'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Love you, too. Bye. Bye. I realize that when you go to New York, you have to kind of start at the top. Nobody wants to hear that you started at the bottom and worked up. They want to know you're useful to them. It's a very transactional place. I like New York because it's exactly what's written on the side of the packaging. You know, it does have steam coming out of the grids. It is just one giant concrete ATM. Everyone's there because they don't fit in somewhere else and they want to struggle. But also, there is no king of New York. Well, okay, I want to be the mayor for three years. So, well, okay, well, I'm the president. That's Donald Trump's home. That's why a guy like that can become president of the United States. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, right. But, you know, look what happened when he became that. He had to move out. It doesn't fit here anymore. Right. You've lost your home because you don't fit in here anymore with the attitude that you're the best. I remember shooting in this apartment, in this, like, needle building overlooking Central Park. These 70-year-old hedge fund couple, they were across 57th Street and then this tall building got built and they were like, they've been there 20 years. What the hell? It's ruined our view. We'll get a 65th floor apartment in that building and no one will ever build in front of this one for the next 20 years. And I was shooting it and all of a sudden it goes dark and it's a blue sky day and I'm like, what the hell? And it was another building casting a shadow over it. Even if you've just spent whatever 30 billion on this, there's always some freaking shadow from something else, which is great because it means... There's always somebody else who's got something you haven't. Right, right. <laughs> I know it doesn't make it equal, but it makes it democratic that if the lights all go out, everyone's got to deal with the same heat wave or the same swarm of locusts. Or COVID. Or COVID, yeah. So it's weird because it's a completely disparate city in one sense, but you're all on the same island dealing with the same shit. 
you still got to walk from your doorway into your limo and smell the shit on the street that everyone else does. And you either got to get out because it doesn't work for you. I mean, that's the key thing. Everyone's always impressed you moved to New York, but I'm like, but it's brilliant because, again, you know, you could say you lived in New York, which is where people go on vacation and stuff. But secondly, you've got a giant out. You're not meant to succeed, right? You're not. It's meant to churn right. you out like a piece of sausage meat the other end. So if I moved from Manchester and went to Pittsburgh and failed, everyone goes, what's up with you, you schmuck? But if you go for like three weeks in New York and you fail because somebody robs you at Port Authority bus station, you're a warrior. You did it, mate. You can live on that for the rest of your life. <laughs> I love photography. I'm in love with my Samsung Galaxy S8. The camera in this phone is mind-blowing to me. I mean, I mix that with some Lightroom. You cannot tell that these images were shot with a phone. It's impossible. Well, there's two things. Firstly, the quality of the technology compared to the end use, those are two curves going in opposite directions. Right. When I went to college, you shot with 10 by 8 inch slide film, which then went to a 96 sheet billboard, 60 feet long by 20 feet high. Yeah. Now, they'll just put graphics on that or printed vinyl even from a cell phone or whatever. Yeah. So the end use is literally a screen, which is no bigger usually than, you know, 16 inches wide or whatever. Right. But then the quality of your images, you know, whatever the new Samsung they say has got is 200 megapixels in a phone. You just don't need it. It's a waste of time. Of course. So A, I think that and B, the interesting thing for me is how technology determines taste. And it's always done it from before colored paper was printed textiles was the only way you could get cheap color into your house and ceramics and as technology's improved and changed it's how we see the world around us so for instance when i was at college you'd have a 35 mil camera with a 50 millimeter lens and you were told that that 50 millimeter wide lens reflected the viewpoint of a human eye right now if you want to shoot a portrait you would use a long lens because otherwise, if you use a wide-angle lens, your nose is closer to the thing and it looks really big and your eyes are small, so it'd look distorted. Right. So when I was at college, if I'd had done a portrait of somebody with a 28-millimeter lens from two feet away from their face, even my mum, never mind the lecturers, would say, that face, what's wrong with it? It looks like Jimmy Durante. He's like got a giant nose. And now... That's what everyone does on their cell phone, right? So now it's normal. That's how a human brain sees a portrait now as normal is distorted like that. So if you actually took a picture with a 50mm lens now, people go, well, hey, there's something weird about this face. That's the way it's supposed to look. That's what's weird about it. It's accurate. Right. So as a photographer, you have to understand that your eye is not an organ. Your eye is part of your brain. It's as simple as that. Like, for instance, it can do everything, exposures and color balance and all that. But it can't zoom in. It has an equivalent of a digital zoom. So if you look at the Eiffel Tower from a distance, it looks like you're zooming in on it, but your brain is just removing all the information from around it, and it appears bigger, like a digital zoom. So say if I'm doing a shot, and somebody says, hey, I want the Empire State Building in it through the window. And I'm like, okay, put your arms out. Show how big that shot is with your arms. And then with your finger and your thumb, 
show how big the Empire State Building is in that shot. <laughs> and it's tiny. Right. But your brain thinks, hey, this is the one thing that I look at is the Empire State Building. So yeah, our brain basically processes the information through our eyes. For instance, if you're shooting the ocean, you know, a great shot of the beach, and the ocean isn't quite level, your brain knows that the ocean's always level. There's never any time when it's not. So it'll use some calculating power to make it appear straight, because that's what it should do. Now, if you multiply that by all the different things in an image or in a photograph, or what you're looking at visually, the less calculating your brain has to be to fix something in an image, the more pleasing that image the brain thinks it is. So it gives you some kind of reward and goes, oh, that's nice. That looks good, you know. Right. I'll shoot for a client and they go, well, it's nearly symmetrical. And I'm like, there is no such thing as nearly symmetrical. There's another word for nearly symmetrical. It's called asymmetrical. Right. It's like that famous phrase, you know, a half truth is a complete lie. Right. It's either one or the other. Right. There's no semi-boneless ham, said George Carlin. <laughs> yeah. It either has a bone or it doesn't. There's no <laughs> yeah. semi-bone. Exactly. Yeah, now you can go on Photoshop and straighten things afterwards and all that kind of stuff. And the reason you do that is to make it a more pleasing image because your brain has to do less work to appreciate that image. Sure. It's like some screechy violin that's out of tune or if you eat some fries and some of them are soft, you don't know why it's wrong. You don't know what fat was used or what temperature it was, but you know there's something that's not quite right and it's disappointing. So I love the fact that there's all this easy digital use of photography because we can all practice doing all that and the quality of photography has fantastically improved. And more people have access to being able to produce incredible images and there's something very rewarding about photography. I mean, obviously the selfie generation says a lot about us as human beings, but to be able to capture an experience and keep that, like my girlfriend's got thousands of pictures on her iPhone that she just will not get rid of. And I keep my phone super clean, man. I get all that shit off my phone. So I've got plenty of horsepower to get into Lightroom and do all my stuff. But we've become memory addicts, experiential addicts. We want to look back and see what we did and keep living in this kind of nostalgic experience because we're not doing very well at living in the present for some reason. But if you went to your grandmother's house, like there's going to be on the sideboard or whatever, there's going to be some trinkets where she went to Paris and found some little pottery thing that anytime she looks at, it's going to remind her of that trip. So I think, A, it's a very human thing. You know, prehistoric people, you know, painted a picture of the tiger that they chased and got the antelope that they ate last week that tasted really good or whatever. That's one thing. I did a talk once and I started it off with the scene from Blade Runner the famous one where Rutger Hauer is about to drop off the side of the uh, building. Harrison Ford, yeah. You know, and he comes out with that thing. And, and to me, that whole movie is about memories because obviously those replicants don't know if their memories were implanted, whether they have real memories and they're robots. Right. Or whether they're humans or even, you know, whether Harrison Ford is the replicant. Right. Yeah, so it's all about memory. So when he says, I've seen all these things, you know, the Tannhauser Gate and all that kind of stuff, and when I die, that will die like tears in the rain. That's how it used to be, right? Right. So that idea that I've got of being that 80-year-old person being spoon-fed rice pudding, well, the nurse that thinks I'm an idiot by saying that, you know, hey, I opened a free store owned by some guy who nearly killed somebody, she can go back and do the equivalent of Google or just search this AI or whatever, and it'll all come up. Well, 
Isn't it fantastic that that doesn't just die with us anymore? I'm not a big fan of AI and VR and all that kind of stuff, but I remember I was traveling back from Europe to England once. It was in Leicester, and there's a big population of Polish Jews that went to Leicester. And this woman said, there's a real shortage of people who can speak Yiddish because all the people that are getting dementia, when you get dementia, you forget all the recent things. So actually, these people that have spoken English for 40 years regressed to when they were 20 and spoke Yiddish in Poland. So they need to find these people that speak that. And, you know, you want somebody who can converse and talk about whatever it was that they can relate to. Now, how cool would it be to have glasses, VR glasses, with Google Maps and everything where I can visit that store and I can have like a visual AI reconstruction of my kids or my parents who would chat with me about it, you know, and have like a chat bot about it. Because basically, if you were my son, you could come and sit next to me on that bed and I wouldn't even recognize you. And you wouldn't know any of that. So I think that idea of recording stuff, I think that's fantastic, really. I mean, obviously, there's all this sinister stuff. But I mean, if Mark Zuckerberg wants to know that I walked down a street and was Googling how to avoid catching monkeypox while I was walking into an H&M store and sells that to H&M, I mean, who cares? I mean, if that's of interest to anybody, <laughs> you know, it seems to be every minutiae that we do. But how cool would it be to reconstruct your life and have that as the end of your life real of all the cool stuff that you've forgotten? It's the same as your grandmother having that trinket she've got in a flea market in Paris, right? Well, it's the same thing as my mother used to be on my podcast all the time, and I can go back and listen to her anytime I want. She passed a couple of years ago, but I can go hear some pretty funny stuff, and so can everybody else. Right. It's cemented in. Right. As long as these files exist, anybody can even find out who you were in the next hundred years. Your legacy definitely lives on in the digital world, which that part is super fascinating to me. Yeah. When we were kids, there was like four kids and two adults. So the six of us, we had a what we call a dormobile, a VW camper van. But this was in Manchester. It wasn't because we thought we were cool surfers or anything. It was just easier for us all to get in the car. And my mum had an antique shop and shoved wardrobes in it and whatever. Anyway, for my mum's 80th birthday, I came up with this idea of renting the same car that we had when we were kids. I drove it and we drove to where my granddad used to live, where she met my dad. And all these memories were spurred, and we had a GoPro. So we literally got all these things of, hey, why did Uncle Fred live at Gran and Granddad's house? From the horse's mouth. And she got her memories triggered by literally being at the same church where she got married, and all these memories she would have never thought up without being in that actual place at that time and seeing it. So how great is it? We all know how sad it is. If we lose our phone and we haven't backed it up, we're upset, aren't we, really? Yeah. And you could argue, okay, I used to go and visit this old textile merchant and he used to try and remember a name of an old merchant's company or whatever. And he spent an hour trying to remember the name. And I always remember, he said, you can always remember it. And when you quit trying to remember it, that's when your brain's going to start degrading because you're just lazy that even if it takes you 10 minutes, it's there and you can remember it. Right. Obviously, none of us want to die of dementia where we start losing all that memory. But one of the things that maybe is a downside of this is that we don't need to remember where we went. We don't need to remember the map directions because there's Google Maps and stuff. But I may be optimistic that it gives us time to remember other things that aren't as mechanical, maybe, 
it gives our memory chance to fill up with other bits of our life that we wouldn't have had room for if we didn't get this kind of crutch of images and data and everything that we did. I'm actually really grateful. I mean, I have pictures of my family when I was like 10 years old on my phone. If somebody wants to see me when I'm a kid, I mean, literally in a minute, they could see a little red-haired baby on the lap of my mother. And uh, that's pretty amazing when you can convey something so quickly, so instantly, and connect with people in a totally different way that we never could do before. Yeah, and as I say, there'll be ways that software or whatever will put that together where it's an interesting, cohesive thing. That VW that we had, which must have had it for about three or four years, I said to my mum at the time, I said, oh, do you have a picture of the Volkswagen that we had? And she said, no. <laughs> Bear in mind, we were a creative family. You know, my mum's creative too. Right. And my dad was a graphic designer. I'd be playing around with letter set and, you know, photo paper from the dark room and stuff like that from his design office. And I said, why have you got a picture? She said, why would we take a picture of the car? <laughs> right. Why would we take a picture of the car? <laughs> we had Polaroids of all sorts of stuff, but it's a car. <laughs> right. Now everybody takes a picture of their car. <laughs> we maybe stood next to it or something. No, it happened to be on the drive while there was a picture of you arriving in a fancy dress at Halloween or something. Right, right. <laughs> you just said something about working with photo paper at your dad's. Is that how you got introduced to the camera through being in the presence of your father's work and then somehow the photography thing seeped into your consciousness? I think it was literally, okay, what can I do? Like my son is doing video editing because he wants to be not under my shadow. So it's doing something creative, but it's in a different way that you're not competing with anyone. Right. As I say, I went to Foundation Year Art, which was just, you know, hilarious. You could just basically make penis shapes out of plasticine, you know, plastic. It was just being childish and a year of just exploring which kind of arts you liked. So one thing I, I would say is I see myself as a communicator and how I communicate, how I manifest my communication is through photography. But actually, I definitely came into my own doing the things that I do now, the graffiti and all that kind of stuff and memes and things like that. I definitely think I'm an ideas person and either through my DNA or my dad and my family and, and feeling okay about seeing things from a different direction and my humor as well. I feel like I would have been good in an ad agency, I think. Having said that, I've never had a client. <laughs> so it's always good to think up just random ideas when it's not actually a client. Let's talk about your guerrilla communication style of hitting the streets of New York, leaving messages for people and leaving a bit of your personality around. Yeah. Even before anybody knew it was you, you were out there doing some things and evidently you finally disclosed your identity right. or somebody figured it out and it became public knowledge. But how did that whole concept of going out there and being under the radar, what was that trigger? How did that happen? People say, oh, when did you start doing street art? But even when you're a kid and you go out and you dam a stream, you know, which seemed like a weekly occurrence, you just find a stream and then work out how to put a dam across it and which rocks to use and sods of earth to plug it and whatever. You know, there was something about constructing things and creating things that was always there. And I remember we were moving to Princeton in New Jersey and, you know, proper snow, not like English snow, which was like two inches. This was like 10 inches of snow. 
and building these snow sculptures that were illuminated, you know, with fairy lights and got in the local paper every year. And of course, I'd say I did it with the kids, but, uh, you know, they'd put like three buckets of snow on and then go in because it's too cold. So I'd be out there for five hours building these things on the premise that it was a kid's sculpture. But it's just really me. And then when I did the store, it had this garden in the back that literally there was only me and one other person had access to it. So I just invited all these graffiti people to come around to do all this graffiti in it where they couldn't get arrested. So then got in with that community, then started seeing how they did it and doing it myself. You know, a lot of it's confidence, isn't it, really? And I, I started off doing stuff. Basically, there were dad jokes. And I suppose when it really took off was David Bowie died and my brother said, you know, they should rename a street, the Bowery, David Bowery. And then there was a giant snowstorm, so I climbed up and painted David in front of Bowery just to try and impress my brother. And it went viral. And my daughter said, hey, Dad, you're top trending on Facebook. And I'm like, what does that mean? She said, well, you're above the sloth. And I was like, Eleanor, I regarded myself always above a sloth. And she went, no, the sloth is like this big, whatever it was. And I said, meaning New York? She said, no, across the world. The old thing is the number one topic. And actually, what was great was all these people were just like, oh, wow, this is what happens in New York. Like the graffiti people were like, yeah, this is New York. Somebody can climb up in a snowstorm and have the balls to do that. But all these people, like with Princess Diana and all that kind of stuff, and even with Bowie, anyone who died, you'd just have all these candles and flowers outside their apartment, which is nothing wrong with that. But it was a different way of having a memorial where people could see it was also a bit of fun and stuff. And it stayed up for like two or three months. And, you know, it's fairly harmless. You know, it wasn't like massive destruction. I wasn't writing my name anywhere. I didn't put my name on it because that didn't seem appropriate. You know, like nobody cares who the stone carver of David Bowie's gravestone is or who designed the typography. It's just, you know, it's about David Bowie. Right. And then uh, Aretha Franklin died. So I changed Franklin Street to Aretha Franklin Street and put respect on the subway. And that became an official. It's still there. Four years later, MTA made that official. So then it became this person that everyone, as soon as somebody died, everyone went, oh, you know, it was like the phantom. I almost was like a voodoo person. I remember doing uh, Spring Street and I changed to Springsteen and literally people were posting going, hey, did he die? Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I mean, you did the Whitney Houston thing too. Yes, like Van Halen, you know, there's Van Sicklen Avenue. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, which is kind of a hard one. But then I realized that 50th Street, if you change the five into an R and then the O took the top off, so it was a U, it just said Ruth. I was away, so I got a friend to do it. So he did it, and then the governor of New York posted it on his Twitter and said, oh, this is amazing. And I'd also by that time got my citizenship. I mean, I've been arrested a couple of times. It's like an occupational hazard. So I just thought, well, screw it. I mean, it gives lots of people lots of pleasure. Everyone's asking who's doing this, who's doing it, how do you do it, whatever, why do you do it? And I just thought, if I'm not going to get arrested for something, it's like for Supreme Court. They're not going to put me in jail for Supreme Court judge thing. And it was always stickers. I didn't ruin anything. You just peel this stuff off. Funny, I did email the MTA and said, oh, you know, we should do like some commemorative stuff or whatever. And I, and I emailed him and said, oh, my name's Adrian Wilson. And they sent me a really nice letter back and said, Adrian, we're well aware of who you are. Ah. <laughs> so they got it and they enjoyed it, but they couldn't really condone the vandalism. So to be honest with you, it was a pain in the ass coming out. And I've gone back to being anonymous again. 
But lots of people liked it. Did become a bit of a slave to my own art, really, because people were always like, "Hey, what you're posting is memes, is whatever." And then also, you just got all the stuff where people called you racist, anti-Semitic, uh, hated black people, poor people, whatever. You're a vandal. You're ruining this. I'm going to come to your house and spray on your house. Nobody ever did. It was that's just somebody on the internet who wants to get lots of likes for their bad comment they never do anything right i mean when i did van halen avenue because it was in east new york and somebody posted who was black they said why aren't you doing that in the east village why are you doing a tribute to a white person in east new york which is a black area and i was just like well firstly if you know your history he never played in cbgb's or anything like that it wasn't a punk which is the east village and secondly, if it's not meant to be in a black area, he played on Michael Jackson and beat it and worked with lots of black people. His mum was actually Polynesian, so he's mixed race as well. And then beyond all that, it's because Van Sicklen Avenue is in East New York. And I did it there because it's the freaking name. Right. But there's this whole discussion about like, you know, well, this, that and the other, you know, like I would write on trash. Literally to highlight the amount of trash thrown out, there was always mattresses thrown out. And I'd turn them into jokes, you know, like war and piss. And people are like, oh, somebody could have had that mattress. Firstly, you can still lie on it. It's just spray paint. And secondly, if you want to lie on a mattress in Bedbug City and take it home that you find on the sidewalk. A little spray paint is almost an antiseptic. You should be appreciating that. (laughs) So I went anonymous because, for instance, the Aretha Franklin thing, you know, I'm a white, English, skinny guy. I'm sure there'll be plenty of people saying, hey... She's a black female icon of America. Like, you've got no right to do that, you know. And ultimately, it's always about the message. So I always felt that the message was most important. And the example I gave is if you go into any museum, if you remember the frame around any painting, it's a shit painting. And it shouldn't be about me, the artist. It should be about the message. And, you know, all these things where you see a mural with a giant pair of wings with hashtags and at and whatever... It's because the person is doing it to try and get attention for themselves. It's not altruism. There's a difference between street art and graffiti. And I'm not part of the graffiti world, but they don't hate me as much as the people doing wings and stuff. And I understand that one of the definitions that I say the difference between graffiti and street art is you never see graffiti and wonder whether it's sponsored by a brand. Right. Did you see what Gucci did? Yes, that's Gucci taking graffiti and using it. Right. But you'll never see a graffiti tag and then wonder, oh, does that say LVMH or does that say H&M? Nobody puts a hashtag next to a graffiti tag. Right. One of the best pieces of graffiti that I saw was... Some people are so poor, all they have is money. So it's got that purity where it's about a message. Hey, this is it. This is me. This is my typography or my tag or whatever you want to call it. And I'm putting it here as a fuck you or whatever. Sorry for swearing. If you're listening in 2090, that's my great grandchildren tutting. I can hear them now. So yeah, you know, there's a purity to it. And I've enjoyed going back to being anonymous again because you see people smile. The reflectors in the road were patented and invented by this guy after he saw headlamps reflected in an animal's eye when he was driving. So he came up with these things, and they call cat's eyes. That's what we all call them, cat's eyes. So there was some roadworks near where my mum lives. Last time I was in England, and it said, because there's roadworks, cat's eyes removed in this big red sign. So I made another red sign exactly the same. A hundred meters down the road said, mice very happy. Uh. 
And this guy posted it. And he said, like, I've got a million and a half hits on this. Do you want credit for it? And I'm like, well, you could post who I am if you want. But, I mean, it's irrelevant who I am. It makes people smile as they go past. And that's great. That's all it's meant to do, you know. Going back to the store, one thing that the store was about was having a hobby. And one thing that our generation had and doesn't happen in this generation is that people just have a pastime where it's just about doing nothing just for the sake of it. So the proverbial whittling your stick or whatever. So people used to say to me in the store, hey, how do you pay for this? And my answer would always be when it was winter and your grandmother knitted you a hat, did you ask her how much the wool cost? Or did you tell her you could sell these in the shop? No. It was just something that she did for the love for you. And you wore it even if it was ugly because you love your gran, right? So when you speak to people now and you say, what's your hobby? They'll go, hey, I do this podcast. But actually, I'd love it to be taken up by Apple and make money out of it. So people have all these hobbies that are potential businesses. And as soon as it's that, it's not a hobby. And it may not be fun anymore either. No. I mean, that's why I do this podcast and I go take my two-hour walks every day and shoot the shit out of where I live right. because I love doing it for me. I don't really care if anybody listens to my podcast, honestly. Right. I'm doing this for you and me so we can have a chat and meet each other and I can show photos to my friends. And if somebody wants to donate $5 online, $5 is a lot in Vietnam. Right. I don't have a job right now. So it's fantastic. But I'm going to take these pictures with or without you because I love engaging with humanity in that way. And it's not about money. And it will never be about money. Right. Well, I don't know about you, but I wasn't born with any musical bone in my body. I can't catch a ball. I can't do a, you know, dance. Well, I'm English, so none of us can dance. It's not an unusual thing to say about us. But there's all these things I can't do. But the gift that I've been given is to communicate, see things in a funny way create a visual thing, whichever way it is, with graffiti or a photo or a meme or whatever, and add to the world around that either they it puts a smile on their face like the cat's eyes thing, or with the store makes them consider, hey, does consumerism really make me happy or whatever? But you do it in a way that isn't punching somebody in the face. You do it in a way that's, you know, an interesting way. That's my skill. So actually, the thing that's wrong with life is if you've got a skill and you don't use it, that's the sad thing with life. I was the same person as I am now when I was young, but I was insecure. I felt put down. I felt I wasn't good enough. And now I don't care anymore. So that thing where, you you know, you remember your kids, right? When they're seven and eight, they'll run down the sidewalk and run around a lamppost and go, and whatever, and didn't care about what anyone thought, right? Right. And then once you retire, you go back to not giving a crap anymore. And we've all got that period in between And it's how much of that period you navigate being uptight that, to me, is the sad thing, really. If you can be yourself, navigate life, obviously not to the detriment of other people, but if you can be yourself, the sooner you can go back to that freedom of thought of being a child. You know, I always joke, I can speak two languages fluently, English and childish. And the fact is, I could come to Vietnam, Africa, South America, anywhere, And any five-year-old can convey whether they're tired or hungry or, you know, whatever. They can convey enough information that you can interact with them, right? Right. And that's all you kind of need to be able to do in life is to interact on that level. All the other stuff, it's just baggage, isn't it? It's noise. Right. You know, when you're five, there's three main things in life. You're told that you can draw well and you draw a house and it's got a tree next to it in crayon and it goes on the fridge, right? 
you help your mum cooking and like you know whisk up the frosting on some cupcakes and you think you're a chef and you hit a, like a drum or do whatever and it sounds like you can make music and after you're five you're told well actually you're not progressing it doesn't look good anymore you're meant to get those cherries absolutely straight you're eight now it doesn't look right and you sound out of tune we've given you violin lessons for three years you're crap stop music you've got no musical talent and those are three basic things that from cavemen onwards, we've all done those things, right? As soon as we climbed out of a tree, we got a way to get high, make some music and make some marks on the things around us. And those are all basics that is in every human being. And it's a real shame that that all gets drilled out of us. And it is cool that your girlfriend, no matter she's with a photographer who's obviously got more skill level, loves taking those pictures and doesn't feel that she's not good enough because the technology helps her. She doesn't have to think about F-stops and chemicals and exposures and all that kind of stuff. She can just take the picture. Right. There's no coincidence that when you retire, you tend to do those things that are art, music, or food. And you tend to look forward to the time when you don't care what people around you think anymore. Right. I really don't give a shit anymore. I love my life so much because I'm not letting life keep me from living. Right. Now, we're lucky. that Obviously, we're not doing it to the detriment of other people. And also, my daughter got a new job recently, and she's like really bowled over with this job. She's 25. And she was telling me how happy she was and how she felt lucky and she'd work for it. And I said to her, Eleanor, you know, the important thing in life, I'm not religious, but one important thing about religion is that people thank God all the time, right, for things that go well and are appreciating it. It's because I've been praying or I've been a good person or whatever. But that idea of appreciation, when you start taking everything for granted that goes well, you're in trouble because then you think you just deserve it as a standard way of life. And it's not. It's a special thing that happens when good things happen to you and you should always appreciate it. And that's the other key thing with life, right? To appreciate just being alive and the good things that happen. And I think that it gives you a better outlook on life, really. You nailed it. I just went through this with a friend of mine. I had read the first 30 pages of a book called Conversations with God, and it was all about gratitude, and it literally changed my life instantly. I realized that being grateful turned something on. Not only did it make me feel better, but when you have gratitude, more comes. You become more aware. The tiniest things become magnified of how amazing. I live my life in awe every day. I mean, that's part of the photography thing is the most common and ordinary things charge me up so much. I'm dancing down the street, making these Vietnamese people laugh. And I'm I'm a clown here. I'm having such a good time entertaining these people. And it's because I can't believe I get to do what I get to do. I'm so in gratitude all the time, all the time. Right. And your reward is now and the other thing is you have more empathy because once you realize, wow, I'm going to be grateful just for the fact that I can make people smile. Well, you have more empathy for people who are in a situation where either they can't smile themselves or they're dealing with such issues that they can't even make their partner smile at home or whatever. So you also have more empathy by having more appreciation of what you've got. It also makes you appreciate what other people don't have. And that's to give you empathy. Right. And again, there's another famous story about the guy who asked the uh, rabbi, if God exists, why did he create atheists? 
Which is a great question, isn't it? Yeah. And I feel God has no other person to believe in, so he's an atheist. So I'm, I'm guessing I'm going the same as him anyway. Right. <laughs> and it's six to one whether you get it wrong. So I figure like baseball, if you don't have any team, nobody can be pissed at you. In that book, Neil Donald Walsh asked God, why is there war? And he said, because it's something to do. <laughs> yeah. So the rabbi answered why atheists exist. He said, it's to show religious people why you should do things. Because... Atheists don't do something because they think it will please God or for karma or anything. They do something nice because it actually is the right thing to do. And it makes you feel good and it improves people around you. I'm happy if people behave in a way and appreciate life and conduct themselves better through religion or through the gift that they've got or through whatever means. But to me, when people say, oh, I want to be happy, that's a ridiculous statement anyway. I mean, unless you're on crack or heroin or something, it's like saying you want to sneeze all day. There's no contrast. You're not having a full experience. Life is about the emotional spectrum of everything, the worst to the greatest. And that's what being a human being is all about. Right. But being content, you can be content and understand and have an understanding of what's going on around you and go, okay, well, if this bad thing's happening... Like you say, with the appreciation, I can appreciate this, this, and this are are good. The main big things are good and underlying good things. Even if I got cancer and was told I got six months to live, I would look at all the good things I've been thankful that have already happened in my 58 years. Yeah. So having that thankfulness and appreciation definitely improves your life. Once you've got true appreciation, I mean, just being alive in itself, obviously there's people in pain and all sorts of stuff, but... You hear so many stories of people that just get the simplest, tiniest pleasure. You know, look at Ukraine or just the fact that somebody could be in a war, but then they can dance in their backyard to some music because they say, screw it, I want to put on some makeup, I don't care. Yeah, I might die tomorrow, I'm going to put on some makeup and just dance in the backyard in the middle of a war. It seems crazy, right? The war part is crazy. Yeah, but it shows that you can take any horrible situation you're in you know, look at Salman Rushdie, what's happened to him? You know, apparently he's talking again. He must be so grateful that he can talk or raise his little finger or yeah. communicate or whatever. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that even in your worst situation, there is always something that you can look at. Even if it's the fact that you've had an interesting life or you've been alive, you can always look and be appreciative of something. Like being invited on this podcast and causing people to send $5 through Venmo or PayPal to Vietnam to keep this thing going. (laughs) It's an honor for me to talk to people like you, and there's been a lot of really good messages that have come through you today in addition to your life experiences, and really appreciate you spending some time to be on the Citizen 44 with Mark Aaronsberg podcast. I don't need to wish you all the best. You already have all the best. I know that you have a super high quality of life. You understand how things work, and I'm happy that we had an opportunity to connect and uh, and do this together. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. Take care. Step two, get some good, some food in you. Step three, think real hard about what you want to be. Step four, everybody just do your thing. Wake up, today's gonna be a good day. 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 Wake up
One step at a time, yeah, that's how you make it. Set a goal you control, and the steps you take them. I try to pick one thought, have some concentration. And if I make a mistake, it's called education. I try to do this every day, call it replication. Wake up, today's gonna be a good day. 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 Hello, dear. Hello, dear. How are you today? What's going on over there in District 2, Saigon? <laughs> I'm great. My plan is to go out to the beauty salon training center to join the class about the tattoo on eyebrow, eyeliner, and lip. Yeah, you're taking a class where you're going to learn how to do permanent makeup tattoos on eyebrows like yours. You got yours done a couple of months ago, and they look amazing. And I told you that my mother had her eyeliner done. Yeah. But you're learning to do eyebrows, eyeliner, and lips. Yeah. And why are you taking this class? Uh, because I want to enjoy my life with something I dream to do in my future. That's enough really to do for a job, but I really want to do some art. So that's it, the thing I want to do. Well, that's pretty interesting. I mean, your father is an amazing artist, painter, sculptor. And uh, of course, you have that in your blood. You take really great photographs. You take amazing selfies and amazing food photographs. Thank you. <laughs> I love that you're creating something new for you to do. Yeah. You're in Saigon right now. You've been there since September 8th. Yes, because um, my friend invited me to chance her son's birthday slash wedding. Because she went to the U.S. at the COVID situation 2020. So she stuck there and she decided to stay with her boyfriend, Vietnamese-American, in um U.S. So they lived there and we couldn't meet each other like three years already. And she has a little boy and now she came back to Vietnam to visit her family. So, yeah. And I got to meet Nini and her boy and her now husband. Yeah. What's her little boy's yeah. name? Max. Oh, Maximilian. And yeah, they oh, yeah. call him Max. Yeah. Because so you and me and Pink and your sister and yeah. the kids all went and stayed at your friend's house up in the mountains near Dalat. Ah, oh, that's the Bao Lop. Right, Bao Lop. Yeah, this is the highland of Vietnam. Every day, the weather is cool. Yeah. And then a few weeks ago, we all went to Da Nang and Hoi An, and she met up with us, and it was a big reunion of friends and family. And I met her husband. And we had a lot of fun walking around Hoi An and Da Nang and all that. Yeah. <laughs> so you're in Saigon now. You're yeah. going to take the class. But you went to Saigon for the birthday party, wedding party. 
and you're dealing with some stuff with your business because you had a travel tourism business and COVID killed it. Yeah. And now you're closing all the doors on that and doing all your paperwork and all that kind of crazy stuff. Yeah. But you're coming home in one week. Yes. I will be home in one week. I've been here now almost three months in Quang Ai. I moved in with you on July 1st. Yeah. How's that going for you? <laughs> yes, I, I'm so happy now, even though we have some time so yeah. difficult. But all of that is the happy thing for me. I'm yeah. happy with everything. Me too. Yes. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I was just thinking about it while I was in the shower, and I realized like out of three months... We've only had a few days that were really hard. Just a few days. It's not like a week or two weeks. We had a few days that were really, really hard. And that's behind us now. It's really great. We're living together in this cool house that you built that overlooks a beautiful tropical garden on your father's property. And we have all the family together on this property. Your father and Na live to the right of us. And then across at eye level is your sister Fong, Viet, her husband, and Mia and Morphal. And then underneath them is your brother and Ha and Bop and Meet. So all the families together in one space, but we all have our own space and get together. Of course, you and I are at your sister's house every day. Your job for the past year and a half has been helping her raise Mia and Morphal. Mia is now four and Morphal's two. You hear that? Thunder. It's raining. Yeah, the storm started about 30 minutes ago, right after I watered all the plants, of course. That's kind of like the thing is if you wash your car, it'll rain. Is Pink home now? Yes. Did she just get home? Yes. Hi, Pink. Hello. Hello. You're on the Citizen 44 with Mark Aaronsberg podcast. What's that? Uh, noodles. Ah. Chinese noodles. Noodles with what? What's in it? With fish. Oh, too bad. Lean Ann already ate dinner. What did you have for dinner? I had juice. There's pineapple, apple, kale, and cucumber. Ah, was it delicious? Yeah. Yeah, so Lean Ann is a healthy person, but she wasn't when I first met her. She thought I was crazy because I was vegan and couldn't believe that someone could not eat meat and only eat vegetables and fruit. Now, she's about 95% vegetarian, and she's super healthy. She's had a lot of medical problems in the past, cancer and tumors and all kinds of stuff and had surgeries. But now, even with kidney problems, she does this purification process. She's got a very clean system. She mostly eats fruit, and now she's trying to help other people. You just met with somebody who has late stages of cancer, and it might be too late for them, but... Isn't that what you want to do? You want to help people get better nutritional habits? Yes, yes. I'm helping him now. But he didn't want to stop eating meat and fish. So I told him about my story, about healing myself, withdraw vegan after mind and body purification. So after that, he agreed to try to eat just vegetable. And now he's drinking the juice, but it's really too late now. There's a lot of sick people out there and they're taking medicine and going to doctors. But, you know, you've become the master of your own body and you've learned through having to change who you are and what you think about your body, what you think about food, what you think about medicine, 
what you think about healthcare. You've changed everything since I've known you because when we first started dating, you were a meat eater, beef eater, pork eater. You ate everything and you were so sick all the time. When did you see that thing about doing the purification? Two years ago. And you took me go to the hospital. Yeah, we had the worst hospital experience, a really scary, horrible experience. And I think that was the trigger to get you to change and start taking care of yourself. And thankfully, you found this master online who does the, the mind-body purification. You also found Marcus. Yeah, healing yourself. 101, right? Yeah. He's super hardcore. He's like my age, but he looks like a young surfer guy now. But he too, like Lean Ann, was sick all the time, no energy, taking medicines, all that kind of stuff. Lean Ann had double breast cancer, asthma, all kinds of conditions that put her in the hospital and on medication, even on medications that were ruining her teeth. But she's super healthy and looks incredible, incredible. She's in amazing shape. She's got plenty of energy. Anyway, I'm super happy for you. And I'm super happy for me that I have a really, really healthy girlfriend who actually helps me too. We're both pretty healthy and that makes for a, a nice relationship that we both have similar goals to be healthy. My dear, one, I miss you terribly. And two, I liked having you on the show. It was super fun. It was with you and my dad and Sandy. Was it for my dad's birthday in July? Was that what it was? Yeah. Yeah, didn't we sing happy birthday to my father? Yeah, we called him. After we went to the beach, then we went home. Then we called to your dad, and your dad were with friends. Right, so we did. That was July 19th. That's the last time you were on the show. Yeah. Well, my love, it was great to see you and chat with you. Thank you for talking to us about the things that you've done to get your health back and what you're doing in Saigon. And thank you for believing in me and letting me live with you and have this fantastic life and, and letting me love you and you loving me. Uh, you're welcome. I love to share with you everything. It's like a dream. I, I find it hard to believe sometimes. Okay, love you, dear. Thank you. Love you. Nice to see you, Pink. Nice to see you. Bye-bye. Bye. This show is sponsored by Crater Lake Taxi. Clean cars, 24-hour service, Medford Airport, wine tours, emergency car lockout, towing, battery jumpstart, and food delivery. Ashland, Talent, Phoenix, Medford, and beyond. Ask about their loyalty program. Mention the Citizen 44 podcast and get a 10% discount on your next taxi ride. 541 333 3333 Additional music for today's show provided by RobbieLindauer.com. Thanks, Robbie. Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. Pretty, 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 pretty good. <laughs> change your diet, change your life. It's that simple. I am Citizen 44.